prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, David Chase takes The Sopranos to the big screen with The Many Saints of Newark. Hey guys, Josh Horowitz here with another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused, and a new guest to Happy, Sad, Confused, someone I'm not sure I ever thought would be on the podcast, to be honest, uh, primarily because he's known most for his television work that has come in the past. Uh, he hasn't been doing, he hasn't had a lot of like produced work in recent years, and he also just generally doesn't do a lot of interviews, but happy to say the great David Chase is the guest on Happy, Sad, Confused uh, this week. If you listened to last week's uh, show, you know I'm a fan of this new work, The Many Saints of Newark. This is The Sopranos prequel of sorts. It tells the story of young Tony Soprano, played by Michael Gandolfini, yes, the son of James Gandolfini, but also of Dickie Moltisanti, played by Alessandro Nivola, last week's guest, and uh, features a fantastic ensemble, including uh, Ray Liotta fantastic. I'm curious to see if he gets some awards love for this because he's really good in it. Um, Vera Farmiga, Corey Stoll, the list goes on and on. Anyway, the guest though this this week is David Chase, who's somebody that fiercely intelligent. Um, uh, I mean, it doesn't, I'm not using hyperbole to say this guy is really responsible for changing the face of television. The Sopranos just changed the paradigm of what you could do on TV and the ambition and the kinds of heroes you could depict and the complexities uh, the violence, the profanity, all of it. I mean, it was all like wrapped up in this kind of perfect show on HBO back in the day. And I would say you do not get the likes of, you know, Breaking Bad and Mad Men. And I could list off dozens of others without what was created by David Chase and the company that made The Sopranos. So this was thrilling to have him on. He is, he's kind of a tough interview in some ways. And I knew this going in. Um, he's, you know, a lot of the guests I have on the show, A, a lot of the guests are actors who are just, like, born and bred to be charming and sweet. <laughs> That's just the way they are. Um, but even directors, they have to tell a story, and they kind of, like, just have that gene of being kind of very um, affable. Um, I wouldn't call David Chase affable. And David, if you're listening, I mean this in the nicest possible way. He's just kind of a prickly guy. Which is, is okay. I love him, and I think he's so fascinating and intelligent. And yes, he does have a sense of humor. Uh, but in the moment when you're having a conversation with him, you're, it's a different feeling. It's a different kind of feeling uh, interviewing David Chase than interviewing 99% of the other folks that I've done on the podcast. And I knew that going in. I'm relieved to say I listened back to the conversation. I was like worried. I'm like, oh, how's it going to come across? Are people going to think that he hated me? I don't think he hated me. I watched it back. He does not hate me. We had a great chat. Um, yes, he kind of questions me at times on some of my questions, but that's okay. I'm a big boy. We can have disagreements. It's okay. Um, the bottom line is um, I want you guys to kind of recalibrate. If you haven't heard a David Chase conversation, um, just know going in, this is going to be kind of a different cadence to a conversation maybe um, than most of the conversations on Happy, Sad, Confused. Also, he's an older, older gentleman, so just a different you know, way of speaking. That's enough preamble on the conversation. It's fantastic. No more apologizing. It's a great one. And you guys really should check out The Many Saints of Newark. It comes out October 1st. It's on the big screen, where available, where you can see it safely. Try to do that. Um, it is also going to be on HBO Max. I know it's going to kill David Chase for me to even say that because he wants you to see it on the big screen. But like I said, I've seen it on the big screen twice. It's fantastic there. I saw it as safely as possible. I felt good about it. If you feel good about it and you're able to, go see it on the big screen. 
I'm just giving you all the options. Um, other stuff cooking in the Josh Horowitz world. I'm very happy to say we have taped a new episode of the Comedy Central series, The Untitled Josh Horowitz Show, with one of my favorites, recent podcast guest, James McAvoy. Yes, James McAvoy always delivers. He's fantastic and funny and smart and witty and inappropriate and makes a great guest, and that is coming up in the weeks to come. Check it out very soon. Uh, Some cool MTV interviews that are already in the bank. I've teased these before, I think, but I'll mention again because they're coming very, very soon. Any second now, if not already, my conversation with Tom Hardy and Andy Serkis up on MTV News' YouTube page. Check it out. Coming very soon for Dune. Yes, Dune, finally. My chat with Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya is coming soon to MTV, as is on this podcast, this very podcast. I don't know if it's going to be next week, but it's going to be pretty soon. Denis Villeneuve coming back to Happy, Set Confused for an in-depth, geeky conversation about all things Dune. You will not want to miss that one. Um, other things to mention, let's see. Well, over on the Patreon page, you know, I always have to mention that. Uh, you can always watch video versions of this podcast, including David Chase. Uh, you can watch all the Game Night episodes we've done, and there are some really cool ones coming up. You know I can't tease them too early, but there's some really exciting, cool new guests coming up on game night. Check out all the fun we're having over there at patreon.com slash happy, sad, confused. And the only other thing to mention is something I can't really mention, but because I'm a tease, I'll just say it. I'm really excited. We got the green light on something big and ambitious and in person and with maybe the most requested person on the podcast or in all of the Josh Horowitz shenanigans. So something's cooking. That being said, have I just jinxed it? Is it all going to fall apart? Probably. (laughs) Uh, What's not going to fall apart is this conversation. This is fantastic. Uh, Check out The Many Saints of Newark October 1st in theaters and on HBO Max and enjoy this chat with me and the creator of The Sopranos, the legendary Mr. David Chase. My distinct pleasure to welcome Mr. David Chase to the Happy Second Fuse podcast, sir. Congratulations on the many Saints of Newark. Uh, big fan of this one. I've seen this one twice on the big screen, so I hope you're feeling very proud and excited on the, the eve of the release. Uh-huh. <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about, I'm curious, first of all, just like thinking back. Uh, I remember, for, uh, for instance, I was working at the Charlie Rose show way back when, and we had you on the show, and it felt like it was a big deal because David Chase at that time wasn't doing much talking. What was it like for you back in the heyday of Sopranos, as you did a little bit of press, this, this was, you had had, you'd lived a life as a television writer and showrunner. What was it like to ha- suddenly have the press care about what you were saying in the middle well, of Sopranos? It was a big learning curve as to figure out how to do this and what to say, what not to say. Uh, and I'll never forget Charlie Rose because I couldn't get a word in Edgewood. <laughs> I remember. You go back and look at it. He finished my thoughts. He asked me a question, and then he'd answer the question. <laughs> well, having worked for Charlie for four years, I, I knew that technique very well. And, and uh, I don't feel like I the need to defend him anymore, considering we now know he was an officially an asshole. So a uh, decent interviewer, talked too much, and not a great guy in his personal life. So that, there's that. <laughs> um, but, but talk to me from your perspective. I, I'm curious. Like, was it a bit of a for lack of a better term, a mind fuck for you to suddenly like be so celebrated after a lifetime of writing. Like that must've been an odd experience because 
you know, that it doesn't happen that way. It's usually like the 25 year old writer that's celebrated and, and that's the wonderkind. You were, you would live the life. No, uh, it, well, you know, I mean, to be candid, it's something you always dream about. Sure. Fantasize about it. And I hope other people do, not just me. Um, and there it was coming true. I was being asked all these questions and, but I would, it would never have happened had not James Gandolfini abdicated his role as the interview for that show. Right. Um, he just didn't want any part of it. He didn't want to be the spokesman for the show. He didn't want to do this. He didn't want to do that. And so there was nobody else. And so um, I, I did it. And at first it was not good. Were uh, you saying too much? You were too candid or what? What I remember is um, an interview with Alex Witchell in the New York Times. This is my, my first, maybe. And I mentioned the fact about, that I, about depression, that I had had depression. I talked about my mother. And I, I said it more than once because I, wanted, I was trying to set, you know, promote that show, which was Tony was depressed in his mind. And that's, that's all um, she really wrote about. And since, since then, that's, I, that's my reputation. Right. Sour, depressed, you know. <laughs> Stuck on the Wikipedia entry for, yeah, for yeah. decades. So for, if anybody knows anything about you, they know that um, you've always had an aspiration to be a filmmaker, um, to direct, in fact. Um, I mean, I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, when Sopranos would premiere every season, or at least some of the seasons, you guys would do big premieres on a big screen. You would do Radio City. Yeah, at Radio City Musical. Right. First it was um, the Ziegfeld, mm-hmm. and, which is a great place. And then yeah. Radio City Musical. And I mean, that for me, that was, and I said it that night, um, you're standing on this immense stage, uh, probably on the elephant trapdoor, and... Um, my father, I remember my father taking me there when I was four and a half or five on a Sunday. And, I, I, and you know, can you imagine what a kid, for a kid what that's like with this huge choir on Christmas? And there I was on that stage and like, you know, yeah. How, how much discussion was there back in the day during the series of doing a feature? Did HBO, did Warner Brothers talk about it? Did you seriously make a, a pitch for it or was it just not even in your mind? The only thing that happened was, uh, in that regard, was that Brad Ray, when he became president of Paramount, said that we should make, he would finance the movie Cleaver if we wanted to make it. Mm-hmm. And we didn't. And when I say we, I don't know who I'm talking about besides myself. <laughs> but I remember there's some other people involved. And, and where were you at? So the, the, the show goes off the air. It obviously has this historic finale that is to this day um, analyzed and, and, and poured over. Were you sopranoed out? Were you even thinking like of any other story in that universe or did you need some distance before seriously contemplating? I was sopranoed out, but I don't want to give the impression. I, I loved every minute I worked on that show. That was, of course, the best creative experience of my life. Um, and a lot of people said to me then, and I agreed, you have the best job on television in, in, in Hollywood because um, you get to do whatever you want, which is true, and somebody pays for it, and you don't have notes from the network and worries and 
and you have a great cast and and it was true i had the best job i loved it but by the time 2007 rolled around it was just it was time to end yeah it worked out well so so what changes beyond the passage of time is it is it that an idea that you were that passionate about or was it a little bit of just enough distance had passed where it felt like appropriate and right to to return um no i never intended to return and when I was asked about that, I would say, no, I never want to return. And then I would say, but I have to add, <clears throat> never say never. So, of course, this gets you the reputation of being tricky. Um, <laughs> the truth. Um, um, tricky, evasive. Um, what happened was, I, you know, I had, I had just finished writing a six-hour miniseries just I say but it took me a long time a six-hour miniseries for HBO and um, and I wasn't doing much after that um, and there was two health crises in my family and um, I decided that I needed to really get to work I needed to write something again uh, write something that would get made and produce or do actually started out direct something that get, would get made because I needed, I needed to shake up what was going on at home. Right. And, um, that's how it happened. This, this, the setting of this, um, is, is in the DNA of, of Sopranos. You know, I, I've taken the, one of the joys of, of researching for my guests is you get to kind of revisit things you haven't done in a while. And I got to watch, to watch a lot of the original series in the very first lines, Tony says to Melfi, he's talking about the, the good old days and he's reminiscing about this period that you in fact have, have now captured on screen. Um, it makes sense to me that it is a film because this is a more cinematic period. This is the nicer clothes. This is the romanticized uh, time. Did you find that this period did lend itself to better to a big screen treatment because of those reasons? No, I, I think had we been able or had I decided to do um, a sequel. I think it would have been equally as cinematic. I think the reason maybe you think that is maybe because it has uh, little echoes of The Godfather because of the clothes. Is that is, is that possible? Yeah, there's definitely that. That you can't think of not think of. The Godfather was you know with those shirts and you know. Do you do you feel like so? Talk to me a little bit about your own um, remembrances of of this time period. This obviously. Tanks in the Street in the late 60s has to make an impression on a, on a young man. What do you remember of 1967 Newark? What did you see that made an impression on you? What I remember about 1967 was well, I had only one interest, and that was I was, in, I was in a band. To call it a band is a little bit of a... <laughs> Overstating it a bit, or was it? <laughs> a bunch of friends who who did fool around with the idea of make, having a band. Not fool yeah. around. We took it very seriously. And two of those guys were really, really good at guitar players. And um, at least one of them should have made it. But anyway, so, but we never, you know, the egos and all the silliness about it, we never could get, get it straight. Um, and I didn't know what to do. I was going to get married. That was the other thing. Um, and then I was down in the village sitting on, in, in my car with uh, 
one of these guys, Pete, um, or an amazing guitar player, and um, who had it in his head, really, to be the next Bob, another Bob Dylan. Um, anyway, so we were sitting in the car, and I, we were talking about the future, and I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to go into film school. I think, I, I think I'm going to try my hand at, um, I, I think I'd like really to make movies. I think that'd be a neat thing to do. And he said, well, okay, but I don't think you'll be anything but, you'll never be anything but the uh, drummer in my band. And he, he made my career after that. <laughs> that was the most motivating thing that ever happened to me. By eliminating that as I'll a passion. But, but... Yeah, yeah. How dare you say that to me? It always it kept me going for years. Fine. Okay. If I'm not good enough in that, I'm going to need to channel it into something else. And well, no, it wasn't. It was. I was really interested in film. Yeah. Um, but I, I would have. Even if I had joined his band, I would never have stayed a drummer. But it just was. It just got got me so angry that he would think that about me, and uh, it, it inspired me. Did you articulate, I mean, obviously, again, anybody that knows anything about Sopranos knows that a lot of it is drawn from your own parents, your own childhood, your own uh, family. Did you articulate your passions for music and film to your parents? And what did they make of it? No, I, no, I didn't. I mean, I mean, they knew, uh, they saw me carrying a guitar case around when I started trying to play bass. And they knew that I was really into that. Um, the films, they didn't, they didn't know anything about. I mean, because... You know, films you go to the movies. I would watch movies very late at night on our TV at home. Um, some good ones, actually, on CBS, the Late Show, or even later. Some old movies. I really love those. That's, you know, that's where we saw Casablanca. And, um, but I didn't, I never, um, no, I didn't talk about that much with them. I had to when I was going to actually leave to California to go. Right. Do you remember uh, a specific conversation and what, how did it go? My mother was very upset. Um, and my father said, you can be a clown in the circus, but you're going to finish college. <laughs> so, um, and that guy, Pete, who said that to me, you'll never be anything more than the drummer in my band, is the guy who said, um, <clears throat> remember when is the lowest form of conversation. Same guy. So when you articulate your, your, your dreams of going to California, does your mom say something approximating you're talking through your hat? Like are the specific, are the specific phrases in this film drawn from your. She didn't go in that direction. You're talking through your hat. She went through, uh, you know, a, 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 I've been struck in the heart reaction. <laughs> you see my family, we're Italian American on both sides, hundred percent, but my father's family for some reason are Protestant. And I, there, there are some in America, and I think they, they come from a, a sect called the Waldensians who came to Naples from Germany. Anyway, we were Protestant and we were Italian. And long before this juncture that you're talking about, my mother said to me, I know what's gonna happen to you. You're gonna marry some Irish Catholic girls or girl, uh, drive to California and I'll ever see you again. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, that's exactly what Denise Kelly was her name, California. And the rest is history, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what about 
back to visit but very very slightly and what were what were your what was your family or your parents attitude about about race i mean obviously that's a dimension in this that is much more prevalent uh, given the circumstances and the timing were you in an integrated neighborhood was there much talk about african americans and was it i was not in an integrated neighborhood there was not one black kid in my high school and in the school next to us which was like the bigger town Caldwell, there was maybe one or two um, my parents if they were my mother hated the irish <laughs> not the black people um there was it was all ca ca casual they didn't put a lot of effort into it it was what they call casual racism in other words they would not make a stink about a, a black family being in the restaurant but they wouldn't like it right. but um and i think that's the term for it casual racism yeah and they were not actively angry at anybody and they never told me black people were less than or anything like that it wasn't the big talk about why we're the superior race <laughs> it wasn't that but there was some ingrained oh. stuff from from generations of course yeah never about the superior race right? so it's, it's odd that they did i mean i mean it's not odd but no, they didn't. They didn't. I mean, there's a line in this movie that my mother said, which was, this was probably like 1950, and we were riding on a city bus. Then there was a black person, a woman, I think, um, or a person of color, uh, sitting a couple seats in front of us. And I, I maybe I hadn't seen a person of color before, and um, I was staring, and she like grabbed my or she said. Don't stare at them. They don't like it. Hmm. What do you moving into like the specific characters in this one? Um, I mean, Dickie, for instance, your protagonist, you're, you're, you're played by Alessandro in this. It's kind of complicated his relationship with race. I feel like at first it's almost seems like he's working with black men. Like they like there's there's almost a grudging marriage of convenience there. But in the end, without ruining anything, it seems like it's clearly something that will yeah it's a deal breaker for him okay so he was on the football team with a black guy right uh, i don't know that they were friends in high school um proper and it was patterned in my head on barringer high school in newark of which i knew fairly little although my mother had gone there and i believe by that time it was kind of mixed um and I don't think he would have been friends with Dickie in the hallway, with with um, Harold in the hallway. Right. Nor would he ever have expected Harold to come to the porch store or like or enjoyed that. You know, when you think of printing a TV, they're not equal. Right. And, uh, he was an employee. The the creation of, of of Dickie, who obviously already existed in this kind of you know in this universe, it's a tricky thing for you. Needless to say, you're creating a quote unquote Sopranos story without the most indelible Sopranos character at the center. While Tony is, a, is an important character in the story, he is not, he's not the main character in the story. Um, talk to me about the challenge of creating Dickie and, and creating someone that can live up to the charisma and complexity of Tony. Um, did you find that challenging and what did, what did you need in that character to carry the story? Uh, Lawrence Connor and I, who wrote this with me, we're stupid enough not to be intimidated by this or worry about it. Uh, um, it's probably for the best. Yeah. 
I know this kind of sounds odd to understand, but it was a job and we were going to create this movie. And we decided early on we needed a character like Tony. That's the kind of movie we wanted to make. We wanted to make a real gangster movie. Right. So we need a real gangster. Okay. And we wanted to create a character like Tony, but not like Tony, not Tony, um, with a different story. And that would be interesting. And um, the story of Dickie and his death came to mind right away. Because people talked about him like he was so dangerous and such a badass and, you know, and so contradictory. And so he was, wasn't that difficult to pick him. You know, the, the elephant in the room of this thing, the greatest asset and the greatest challenge, and it sounds like from what you said to me thus far, smartly, you guys didn't labor over this too, too much, but the Sopranos of it all. This, I think one of the greatest compliments I can say about this film is I think it will work for both the diehard person that knows every episode of Sopranos, but I think it works as a self-contained story well, without knowing what it's, what it's nodding to. really important, believe me. I'm, I'm sure, you know, of course it's important to Warner Brothers, and it's important to, um, to myself also and everybody who worked on it. Is that um, something you check yourself on every scene, kind of like, are we serving this own story? Are we, the nods to the, the larger thing are great, but we need to serve yeah. this? No, not no, not every scene. We decided that's what we needed to do, and we hoped that when we dove in and did the story, um, and you know, it's like like any other TV show or movie. You do your best and hope it works. Yeah, um, and hope there's that the inspiration is felt by other people, and and you just do it. Um, I mean, but there was the draft. I mean, what you're seeing comes very late in the, in the process. There was other versions. It always was about Dickie and all that, but there was, we went far afield for a while. So I know you did some, as many films do, of a certain budget, do additional photography um, more recently. What did yeah. that add? What did, what did you find in an initial edit that you wanted to augment, that you wanted to add to in the additional photography? Well, to my mind, that additional photography made the picture. Um, we had some problems with the earlier versions that people, especially people who hadn't seen the show, but actually even people who had, didn't know who was who, didn't know what was going on. Um, and I felt we needed to straighten that out. And I also felt very strongly that, that it was a movie searching for an ending. And that, that's what that was without attempt was. Were, I mean, the, you know, there's certainly more, certain more overt aspects of the film that, that reference Sopranos. For instance, like, was the narration always in there? Um, was the music cue that comes at a very pivotal time always in there? Or did that come late in the process? No, that's the work of movie making. Yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, you know, a film is shot and then, and then you look, you, you cut, or editor cuts it all together and you see what you really have. Well, that's what this is. <laughs> well, seriously, because yeah. from, acting, from actors and directors and what you imagine in your head, now you have to deal with what's really what's there. Right. That, that came through all the time that it took, that came through all the money that was spent, that came through all the wrong turns, 
there you have it. Do you show this different cuts to people you trust or is it an internal kind of like uh, small group? We, I, we did, we had one screening to some, for some friends early on. Um, but it's, it really is mostly internal. Yeah. The, the casting is fantastic. I love seeing Alessandro in this. Um, obviously the casting of Tony is pivotal and it's um, really touching to see his son in this performance. And it just, he, he evokes his father in just like countless, countless ways that you can't even like describe. I mean, it, can, can you describe like what it was like to see him start to inhabit that character on the set? Was there a point where you felt relief or did you already know going in that he was going to be able to well, accomplish this? I mean, I didn't know absolutely uh i don't think any of us did but i got to a, we, i got to a point in the casting process where i just said it's going to be him there's nothing else to talk about um we had you know we had auditioned other other guys um i said it's going to be him and there's nothing else to talk about and it's going to work out it's got to work it's got to work out my only concern was that maybe people will say it's gimmicky but it isn't. I think it's honest and it's real. Um, and then I didn't worry about it anymore. And, and, you know, and then I didn't think about it anymore. But what, what, when you say on set, when I saw him become his father, it, it didn't happen on set. It happened in the read-through. Um, the tables are in a U or a square. And he was across the square from me. Um, on a, you know, and he was, I can't, I can't do it. He was like listening. It wasn't even his scene, but he was paying attention to it as he should have, because he was part, you know, and he started to do this thing with his shoulders and his face. I, I don't know if that was conscious or, and I thought, oh my God, that really, that's his old man. It was really stunning. It's so funny to think about the casting of, of, of James in the first place, because so much of it is about the time and place. Like if that if Sopranos is made today in this environment when oh. movie stars like happily take on TV projects, James Gandolfini's not the star of the Sopranos, is he? Like I, I is at least my theory. I feel like you have the license to get a big name giant actor, not character actor that's never really had the big shot, James Gandolfini. Today? What's up? Made today, you're saying? Yeah. No, I don't agree with that. I mean really? Yeah, there's a lot of the majority of shows on the air are not big, you know, big stars. Um, there, you know, some of them are medium level, some of them are not are unknowns. I, I don't, I really don't agree with that. Okay, okay. Did it feel, you know, you talked about his kind of reluctance to be kind of the face, the public face, at least, of, of, of the show. Did it feel like? I mean, your relationship with him clearly was a complex one over a number of years. You collaborated again on your own feature film um, years later. Did, did that film, did not fade away working with him again, kind of, I don't want to say repair because it wasn't a broken relationship, but it was a different relationship at the end of Sopranos, clearly. We, we, yeah, we were barely, we were barely talking. Um, I remember at the last, I don't know what it was, the last, kind of the last party or the last screening, Maybe it was at the Emmys, I don't know. And that was it, it was gonna be the last time we were all together. And, and we were sitting at a table and my wife, he, saw, he went by with his food. My wife said, Jim, come sit over here, just ignore her. 
and went and sat somebody else, someplace else. Um, and he he had started that kind of stuff, and that really, for my wife, I was just infuriated. Yeah. And I said, "My, oh, I hate that motherfucker. I hate that guy." That's what it had gone to come to from how much I liked him originally. And then um, I was going to make this other movie, and I I didn't think of him. And I think I didn't think of him that much because uh, John Magaro, who played the lead, his son, is not a him like him physically at all. Right. Um, but I guess it got, maybe it got out, or his agent called about, anyway, he turned it down. He had turned it down. Um, so we went on, and um, I was speaking to him on the phone one day, I don't know why, and he asked about the movie, and... Um, I said, well, you know, we're getting there. Uh, it's been, you know, casting has been a problem. I'm not going to kid you. But I, I, I think I think we know who we want. He said, who? And I said, the actor's name. I can't let you do that. All right, I'll do it. <laughs> was, was it ever articulated any more than that about the, the water under the bridge? No. Well, yeah. After that movie, and we got along really well. I yeah. went to a Easter party at, in the daytime at his house. And somebody was, was hawking me about doing a Sopranos movie. And I, maybe I was thinking, oh, I have, I don't. So I asked him, uh, would you be interested in doing, you know, doing a, I asked him, would you be interested in doing a Sopranos movie? He goes, well, I'd have to read the script. <laughs> <laughs> He really had a good sense of humor. There's like there's some like paparazzi footage I saw of him where like somebody's like asking him like Do you think there'll ever be a Sopranos movie? And he goes, uh, Yeah, when David Chase you know goes broke, basically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I, clearly this was I assume this was partially out of love. But you've said before he called you Satan on set. Was yeah. that? A yeah, that was all. He called me Satan and vampire because he called all of us all the writers vampires because we used incidents from people's lives or aspects of the actor's lives. It never did it with him. We never took anything from his real life. Yeah, what's his problem? You're okay. Tony, Tony, Tony Sirico became character actor Tony Sirico to Tony Sirico star because we accented, we used his life and his personality. Right. <laughs> Did you, did you find the need or want to go back to any episodes when you were writing this show or was it so ingrained that you kind of like, it's obviously part of you? Well, I thought it was ingrained, but... <laughs> you needed a refresher. <laughs> I should have, you know, we, we probably could have gone back and looked at some stuff. Um, but in the end, maybe we did. I, let me think. I don't believe so. There is always that strange phenomenon, like with... Oh, yeah, go ahead. We did go back and look at the episode or the scene um, from all debts, public and private, to the scene where Tony explains to Christopher about that cop in there and your father and mm. all that. You, you alluded to this before, due to various circumstances, you weren't able to direct this. And I know that's, that probably sticks in your crawl a little bit because this, that was the intention and you've, you've obviously directed a feature before, but you wanted to on this one. In, in your mind, I mean, Alan does an exceptional job, but is this, is it a much different film? If you'd like, are there specifics that you could imagine have approached in a much different way if you had directed it? 
I, I really can't. I don't think so. I, I mean, yeah, I would have approached it in a different way, but I actually don't think it would have been as good. What did you learn from the experience of doing Not Fade Away? That you, uh, for good or for bad, that you would apply going forward from your feature directing experience after The Sopranos? Did, uh, did that experience, which, you know, I don't know if you had the creative freedom you had on Sopranos, if that was a different kind of experience, but how did, what did you take away from that experience going forward? Um, one good thing, I don't know that it would still hold true. When, when doing that movie, when setting up shot, when imagining how to, how to make a scene fit with a camera and actors, I felt you really, you got it. You finally got this. Um, and I felt very much at ease. Um, and I was hoping I would take that to the next thing, whatever it is. But, you know, I don't know. I, by that time, I, you know, I might be scared shitless again. Um, I mean, I think everybody says, all directors say, I'm always scared every time. But um, what did I take? I took forward some not so good things, like the marketing of a film is hell. Yeah. And it's not, it's not just making the film. It's marketing and uh, everything can be ruined by that. Well, and we kind of alluded to this, the marketing of this film is, is a challenging one. <laughs> you have a film that stands on its own, but also alludes to a very significant property in people's minds. Um, how much, I mean, I can only imagine how much Warner Brothers begged you not to call it the many saints of Newark. Did, really? They were fine with it. Warner Brothers on the filmmaking level, Toby Emmerich, Richard Brenner, uh, and um, I'm just escaping me now. I hope he's not going to be angry. Oh, yeah, Michael Disco. The filmmaking level, they were really good. Not, very few little things. And then after they'd see a cut, they'd say, you know what? I think we should do some more, and you should maybe try this. And so, they, so they, that's an amazing thing for a studio to say in my book. I'm going to give you more money. And you make it better. Yeah. They did. And they, they deserve a lot in my book. But come to the marketing. Well, it's always a challenge. Yeah. The has there been any discussion? Have you have you contemplated um some of these characters live? Some of them don't. <laughs> um, but I would imagine HBO, HBO Max would kill for David Chase Soprano series with John Bernthal and Vera, et cetera. Is that something that's even been discussed? It was just not with specific actors. But it was discussed way before we started shooting about a sequel. I was thinking, God, take it easy. You know, we haven't, nobody's mentioned to me since. No, maybe halfway through, there was some conversation, but, no, but nobody's talked about it. And in your mind, have you contemplated it? Or again, do you need a bit of a break before contemplating going back to these characters? Well, I have contemplated it because and as I was getting to the end of, of this process, I was thinking, this is fun. This, this you know, IP is fun. And um, 
if, if I could if I could work with Terry again, I said this a lot. Uh, he and I could write one together. I'd do it. I wouldn't do it by myself. I mean, Larry was good, but you know, Terry was. I don't know. Terry Winter, of course, for those of you. Yeah, yeah. you know, the go-to guy. Yeah. I'm curious, like, you know, like especially back at it when, when Sopranos first launched, it, there were so many comparisons made for good or for bad and warranted or not with Goodfellas and Godfather, et cetera. Like you, you were lumped in and are to this day, and maybe it's a compliment with Scorsese and Coppola. Did you, have you, do you have professional or personal relationships with those gentlemen? Have you ever spoken well, with, not well, at all? I've, I've spoken with Marty Scorsese. I've never, never spoken with Francis Coppola. I mean, I've spoken with Marty Scorsese. Hello, how are you? Good to see you. That's it. But never a substantive of of overlap between the the projects. No. No. Although Terry Winter, of course, was on The Sopranos and then went to work with Marty. Wolf of Wall Street, right, yeah. Not only that, but Warwick Empire. Oh, sure, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you, I assume you must have seen The Irishman. Did you have any strong feelings either way on, on what he did with that one? I, I really, I really admired it. I, I just, I admired learning in such an exciting way about American politics and labor and criminal activity there and um, Italian American activity there. That was, that was, I mean, I had a basic understanding of it, but to see it. Act and just been depicted so well. Right. I like. Do you, you know, we talked about potentially other other stories in this world. Are there other, are there other scripts that are at a level of like ready to be produced that you would direct? Like if you had your druthers, is there a script that you would love to see greenlit and get back on a set? No, that's the only Sopranos material that I have. It's just been shot. And do, do you have like control? Like, could HBO just do what they want with Sopranos, or is it up to you? Who is it up to in the end? They own it. Is that a scary place to be for you to know that your beloved characters are? No, no, no. It's not. I'm just not scared. I mean, I think they have said throughout the years. Uh, well, you know, we wouldn't do it without you. There is, we couldn't do the show without you. Yeah, listen to that and think unless you really want to, and then you'll do it. Yeah. Um, but no, no, it's not a scary place for me because I don't want this to be a part of my life that way anymore. Right. I have other stories and things I want to. I would imagine you are a small group that have a unique perspective on these kind of major television phenomena that come to an end, wherein like your show was again, so dissected that ending is still talked about to this day. Do you have like flashbacks when you see something like Game of Thrones end and see like the pop culture landscape explode with hot takes? (laughs) Uh, You know, this is not going to sound the way I, I mean it. Is I just don't watch that those things. Right. It's not that I don't watch them because I have any like snotty attitude. Um, I watched Matt's show and I watched Terry's show, and I watched uh, Queen's Gambit, and I've tried other things. But I but I, I I sort of feel stupid saying this, but I say it to every interviewer so they understand. For four years, I, my wife and I were watching nothing but news uh, when Trump was in office. 
And somebody just said to me the other day, why did you do that to yourself? But we didn't watch any fiction. Every, every minute that we were in front of a TV screen, it was NBC, Fox News, CNN, <laughs> back and forth, boom, 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 boom. Um, I relate, I relate in a profound way. <laughs> it was like, a, it was hard to not see the slow moving car crash happen for four years. And yeah, but well, it does feel like a release now, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel like there's, a, there's open space in our collective psyche? Open space. But then what I did after that, I got the Criterion channel. Do you have, are you familiar with that? Of course, yeah, yeah. After that, that's all I watch. There's so much great stuff from the past, some from the recent past, stuff from other countries, stuff from other countries you never heard of, uh, commentary about directors. That's all I do. Yeah. I mean, when I watch on television. I keep thinking I need to break away from this and watch something. I just can't. I know, look when 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 the greatest films are at a fingertip. Like why why take a risk on something else <laughs> when you know uh, there's a short thing waiting for you? I get it. Um, when you look back at this experience, it's been a few years. Um, what was the what was the most joyful aspect of making this film? Was it the writing, being on set, the editing, in this process, finally being ready to release it? What what do you take some pleasure in? This film was a joyous part of yeah. this. Um, two things. Well, the socialization, being every day with a group of people who's that I came, you know, that you come to like very much. Uh, that was that was number one. But that's not filmmaking. That has nothing to do with our conversation, I guess. Editing, editing, like it was with The Sopranos, editing and music. Yeah. yeah, really digging in and seeing what you can create in the edit room and massaging material, yeah. Thing, you know, to, you know, they call film plastic medium. That's the whole thing. It's just, yeah. what if you take this at the end and put it at the beginning? It's, you know, I, people who haven't done that can't understand or don't understand how joyful that is when it hits. It's really like, hitting the number in blackjack or something. Right. Oh, yeah, there it is. <laughs> well, you probably can't separate yourself too much from it because you know you've seen you've you've made the sausage yourself and you've seen the different iterations. But from my perspective, seeing the finished product, um, it this this film truly works and I, I'm I'm in love with it and these characters and this that's a really that's a huge relief. Okay, you know, I have to tell you. And who knows what's gonna happen with it. But there's one thing about this film that I will say. Well two things. One, it's a gangster movie. Um, you don't have to have seen The Sopranos to enjoy this movie. It's a solid gangster story with personal human dynamics. Um, um, I forgot the other one. <laughs> That's oh, enough. What do we, more do we need? It's a movie, it's not a TV show. It's solid, it just, it, it doesn't, for the first time in my life, it doesn't like that, go like that. No, it's it, it's propulsive. It's a self-contained story. It's it's about two hours on the dot. It's uh, and you fall in love with these characters, as flawed and disturbing as some of them may be. Um, it's a it's a good journey to be on, and it's hugely entertaining. And I hope you do feel some sense well, of relief work, after this journey. I work with really great people. This entire cast: Alan Taylor, and then Bob Shaw, who I knew from 
uh, from Sopranos and Amy Westcott. I mean, just the best. Uh, it's been a, a true pleasure to get uh, to know you, sir, today. I'm such a fan of your work, and, and truly, I, I'm very appreciative of your time today. Thank you again. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. Ha, <laughs> ha,